Hey guys, Joe Bonamassa here. Welcome to another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today I'm broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and my very special guest is the one, the only, Mr. Alice Cooper. So please enjoy our wonderful conversation for the next hour. We did a thing for our, our you know, the Solid Rock thing the other night, the, the golf tournament, and we had like, you know, a thousand people outside. And right. it was great. It was like back on a stage with a band. And we had Asia there. We had Lou Graham there. We had my son's band there and uh, Tommy Thayer from Kiss. And, you know, I mean, a bunch of guys up there and uh, Damon Johnson. So it was really it was like a concert. It was great. <laughs> we, we did five shows about a month ago and we did them to 25 percent cap. Yeah. And. I had never been so happy to see an empty room in my life. I'm like, look at humans clapping. <laughs> I'm wait a minute. I'm plugged into an amp. This is great. I'm playing loud. <laughs> I have a I have a I have a sound check. You know. <laughs> Do you know that was it? The rehearsal. We were like giddy. That yeah. rehearsal. We were like a bunch of kids giddy, going, "Okay, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do?" <laughs> yeah. I'll never complain about sound check again. I'll never <laughs> complain about anything again. It's <laughs> this has been kind of a lesson for us, hasn't it? You know, to appreciate being able to go on tour. I'm never going to sit there and go, when is this tour over? <laughs> nope. Just keep it going. Keep it going. How, how many shows do you think you're going to do in the fall? Wow. I'll tell you what we had. We canceled 180 cities. Wow. Uh, when in March 7th, last, last March 7th. Uh, we were in Germany doing that rock um, meets classic. And it was me and uh, Xander and, you know, and all these guys. And, um, and all of a sudden uh, they said, you have 24 hours to get out of Germany before we close the borders. And that was the last I saw of any stage. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we were in, we were in green Bay. We had a perfectly normal show on a Tuesday night in Milwaukee. Oh. The Riverside Theater it was great. It was like nothing was going on. You'd hear a little bit in the news about it. Yeah. We get to Green Bay for a day off, go out and have sushi in Green Bay, which is not where you would normally go, but it was good. Freshwater sushi. Yeah. Freshwater. Walleye. <laughs> walleye. You know, and uh, 1030 in the morning, my, my tour manager texts me and he goes, hey, what time do you want to leave for Minneapolis? I said, the normal time. I got no, you know, no yeah. meeting at the end he goes no no the governor canceled us and i said you know that's it and then we went to minneapolis and it just it just ground down right it was like a house of house of cards right it just uh collapsed well that we did a big show we were doing we did a big show with queen in uh sydney for that remember when australia was on fire the whole right. the whole country was on fire well they did a big benefit there and it was us and queen ninety-five thousand people it was great that that was the last band show that right. we did. That's a good way to go out, though. At least you know. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, um, you know, one of the things that uh, it, it it's so funny. It's like you know, I know there's some people that don't like touring. I love touring because it's just you set up in a different market every night. Yeah, and maybe you've been on that stage 10, 20 times, but it's always new. You always kind of start at zero. Yes. And, and, and you're only as good as your last show. You yeah. Know? Oh, it's exactly. Yeah. You know, people say, aren't you tired of doing schools out and no more Mr. Nice guy and all these. And I go every night, it's a different audience. 
Yeah. And and if we didn't do those songs, they would be, they'd go crazy on us. You know, right. if we, I was with Bowie one time and Bowie goes, I'm going to do an album. I'm going to do a tour. He says, and I'm not going to do any of my hits. Mm-hmm. And I went, that's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. Right. <laughs> what do you think they're there for? They don't want to hear your new material. They want to hear the hits, throw in a couple of new ones, you know, but come on, you know, when you have that many albums and that many fans and that many classics, then you've got to do those. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, it's an, it's a, it's, a, I guess it's a celebration of not only your life's work, but the fans that have taken the journey with you yeah. and, the, and the next generation of fans that, that learned about you from the first generation. of fans. It's a soundtrack for their lives. If you know, if you've been around for 50 years, then it's like me, if I, if I listen to a, if I see the stones, you know, that's, that's 50 years of my life. Every one right. of those albums was a different period of my life. So, yeah. I mean, it's a soundtrack for my life. I don't want them to do all new material. In fact, isn't it true that as soon as they do a new song, you go, that's where you go get a Coke. And, right. <laughs> right. Well, we're we're going to bring it down and do something off the latest record, you know, and, um, but you know, one of the things is like when you put a set list together, I mean, you, you have so many hits and so many songs that people come to see um do you do you try to stagger them throughout the set or do you you know everybody yeah. knows what's coming i'm 18 school's out yeah. but do you hit it with that that song first or do you kind of like wait till more the end of the show it's a balancing act you know you have to you have to keep salt and peppering those things through the show because you start out we start out with like feed my frankenstein you know <laughs> and that's setting up the whole theatrical bit of what's going to be coming and then we go right into no more mr nice guy right into like five or six hits in a row. Right. We've established the fact that this is going to be theatrical and they know it's coming. Yeah. You know, as soon as they come back out on the second part of the show, they know, okay, here comes the theater, you know, and that's when you're, you know, all your Stephen and, and, you know, Dwight Fry and all that stuff is going to happen. But then you right. end with the big one, you know, you end with schools out. Right. You end with those, with those big, those big hits. So yeah. that everybody walks away going, that was the best party I've ever been to. <laughs> right. Yeah. And how long do you, how long is your set normally? How do you, you guys do two hours? Two hours. It's around yeah. two hours. Yeah. Three, you know, I, I can't listen to anybody for three hours. Yeah. I, I, I tried to go to a Springsteen show one time and after two hours, I was going, okay. <laughs> right. I get it. Right. Even the stones are like, okay, you know, Three hours is, is for uh, the most amazing thing about the Stones is the fact that Mick will go for three hours and never break a sweat. You right. know, it's uh, that's pretty amazing. He's still the prototype lead singer. You know, who are your um like like as front men when you when you when you were you're growing up and 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 you know I, I guess everybody has a host and musically and stuff like that. Who are the who are the who who are the acts that you 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 saw and went. I want to do that. Yeah. Not necessarily what they do, but, but I just, I want to be front and center with a microphone. I was the, I was the perfect age when the Beatle Beatle mania happened. I was 15 and I was painting a house and I heard she loves you. Yeah. 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 And I went, what was that? I never heard of anything like that. That was really different. Then an hour later I heard, I want to hold your hand. And then an hour later I heard, please, please me. And I went, what is going on on the radio? And I mean, all of a sudden Beatle mania was on us. And I, I talked to my three best friends and I said, we got to start a band. <laughs> right. We got, I, and they said, well, none of us know how to do anything. And I said, well, it's summer, you know, so, uh, summer vacation coming up. Dennis learned how to play bass. 
Right. You know, uh, everybody learned an instrument. Glenn showed up with a guitar and everything, and that's how we started. But our our bands were the Yardbirds. That yeah. was we wanted to be America's Yardbirds right. because they were the coolest band. I thought, you know, uh, uh, and the Who, of course, were great, and the Kinks. Those were sort of three, the three. Them was a great band too. Right. Uh, them was another band that was just one of those really cool bands. The, later on, that we got more into Paul Butterfield. Mm -hmm. We got more into things like, uh, you know, this a little bit of that. And, and then it just all of a sudden started putting all those things together. We threw a little West Side Story in there. We threw a little Dracula in there and mixed it all up with some, a little bit of comedy in it. And, but it was always hard rock. Right. It always had to be guitar-driven hard rock. To me, that was the guitar players like you. You were the gunslingers. Right. You know, I was the lead singer, but the... When I walked away from that, I wanted a guitar coming in that was just going to kill everybody because Jeff Beck, come on, you know. Well, when I first heard Jeff Beck play and I was getting into like the same stuff, like the Yardbirds and the Beano record with John Mayall and Eric Clapton. Oh, yeah. When I first heard Jeff Beck play, my father played me a record and it was Truth. And it was the first time I heard a guitar being weaponized. I <laughs> felt like he was going to come out of the speakers and bash me over the head with it and it was just this aggression and i was like you know i'm a pretty shy mild-mannered person but it, it was like everybody has that side where you just go man i can use this thing to to get people's attention and and sometimes in not a good way you know yeah, you know we when we first started our parents all loved the fact that we were in a band we they, we had no problem my parents my dad was a pastor and he loved it he loved right. um the first time we did uh uh, I feel fine by the Beatles. Mm -hmm. You had to get feedback at the beginning of that. Yeah. And they were going, Don't, you're, you're going to wreck the mic. You're going to wreck the amps. You know, we right. bought those amps. <laughs> they had no idea that, you know, what feedback was we opened for the, we as 16 years old opened for the Yardbirds. Wow. At the VIP club. And we did all Yardbird songs before them. Right. That was our show. You know, and they were in the back. I'm like, yeah, all right. You know, Jeff Beck gets up and they blew us off the stage. Of course, we were a good copy band, but they were the Yardbirds. They were the Yardbirds. Now, who, and, was, in the, who was in that version of the Yardbirds? Was it Beck and Page at the same time? It was, it was Beck and, uh, no, it was the original Samuel Smith. You okay. know, uh, you know, the guys that were just the real Yardbirds. And um, the one thing that got us, though, is they were doing, I don't know, train kept a rolling or something. And he's got this telecaster that looks like it's been dragged behind the bus for a year. It just right. so big, big chunks of wood out of it. Right. And there's a, he's, uh, he's running it through a super beetle. Right. And he's got it all the way up at the end of the fretboard. And he's talking to Keith Ralph. And while he's talking, he drops the guitar. But when he's dropping it, he's doing triplets. Right all the way down right and catches it on the last note that's feeding back right in tune so it's and our jaws were it was like wiley e. coyote yeah. <laughs> what yeah. nobody can do that but he was 19 and he's showing off of course he is it was to me that was a magical time especially in england you know, where, and I, you know, and I think the competition helped things though. You had Clapton running around, you had the R birds while John Mayall and the who, and, and then, you know, 
Jimi Hendrix shows up in London and it's like oh changes the game, you know? Yeah. And nobody had ever, you know, we have to remember who we were. We were listening to the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys. We had never heard anything that was live like that. That right. they, they took our blues songs and sold it back to us. Yeah. I looked at that. I thought the Rolling Stones wrote all those songs on the first two albums. Then I started reading. I said, who's Dixon? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Some of those bands actually took credit for writing those songs, but then ultimately had to give credit to the people who wrote them. But, uh, well, you know, and, the, and you, you can say, you can say, well, that's traditional blues. Yeah. You know? But some of those things were absolute, you know, the, uh, copies of what, what those oh, guys yeah. were doing, you know. Uh, but, the, you know, think of how interesting that was to us, listening to this electrified blues. Every good band was a, a blues rock band. Right. When you started out, you started out learning Chuck Berry and you, you learned blues songs and Rolling Stones, not realizing you're learning the blues. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we were 16 from Arizona. We didn't know what the blues was. Yeah. And it, I, I, the 12 years ago, I, I got the honor to play with Eric Clapton at the Albert Hall. And I, I, saw told, I, I told him that I just said, you know, I said, I, I don't know if this makes me less authentic or, or what it's just honest. I said, I never heard of the masters until you introduced me to that music because that was my dad's record collector. Exactly. Know? Exactly. You know, and, and now any good band is goes right. Guns and roses, Aerosmith, all go right back to the blues rock bands, you know, like canned heat and, you know, all those early bands that were British bands of Savoy Brown. Uh, even Fleetwood Mac, you know, with Peter Green and those guys, they, they were blues bands. We played with them in Detroit and they were great. I mean, they could jam for like an hour, you know, and they, and they were just great. And I remember um, I, I asked Kim Simmons um, from Savoy Brown and I was like, because he used to be neighbors with my parents. Like we, they lived in the same area in upstate New York. And uh, and Kim still lives up there. He lives in like a, a town called Oswego. Is he is still playing? He's still playing. He's just, he's sitting at home waiting for the call like everybody else, but he's, you know, he's still, I had him. He was, and it was great. And, you know, cause Lonesome Dave was a singer and, and, you know, originally then went on to sing in Foghead. He goes, man, we just want to, we just love playing the blues. And he still does, you know, it's yeah. like it's that, in, that, it, that youthful enthusiasm for this music, you know, yeah. it's still there, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, first of all, if you, I tell people all the time, I meet guitar players, especially my, you know, uh, I had Orianti in the band and right. I had uh, uh, Nita Strauss. And I said, I got to educate you to one thing. I said, I want you to listen to East West by Paul Butterfield. Right. You know, a uh, work song or, right. or yeah. just, a, I said, listen to these two guys, Bloomfield and Bishop. Yeah. Okay. And then first of all, Paul, Mc, Paul Butterfield was like, he hit notes on the harmonica that aren't on the harmonica. Yeah. I don't know where they came from. <laughs> yeah. Because I play harp and I'm going, what, 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 where's that note? You know, that's not on there. Uh, but I talked to Elvin Bishop when, when they got inducted into the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, East West is like, I've worn that album out eight times. It's, it's my favorite album. And he goes, that was all live in the studio. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean? He says, that was like two takes. So we never we never went in and fixed anything. That's how good that band was. I mean, they were yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> when you listen to East West and that, and you go, "That's one take? Are you kidding me?" <laughs> yeah, you you know what I miss? Um, and I, we used to be able to make a record 
take it on the road before you recorded it, get super tight, then go record it. Yeah. Yeah. If I, if I, I mean, even yeah, I'm such a different, smaller scale. I mean, if I go out and play some, some new songs, like, like the next thing, you know, it's like somebody's taking the phone and they, and it's on YouTube and you, and it's like, you can't work stuff out on the road anymore because you kind of have to keep it close to the vest. And then, and then a year later, you're like, shit, I would, I really wish I could have recorded this song. Now I sing it better. It's tighter. It's yeah. I know that, that, that always happens. You know I mean? You, yeah, you are right though. You can't open in a small town anymore and then go to the big town because everybody's going to hear it the first night. Yeah. You know, there's no such thing as just avoiding that. Uh, it just with, with, you know, with the way the, uh, the media is now, and it's, it's amazing that you, you, you can't even go and take a song and, and, and experiment. Let's, let's try this tonight. I said, no, no, no. Yeah. Try it. <laughs> yeah. Cause the next thing you know, it's like, it's like Alice Cooper debuts new song in DeKalb, Illinois at secret show. And it's like video, you know, and it's, and it's, it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, but you are now, you have taken the place of those guys, you know what I mean? Because they're still there. Jeff Beck's still there and oh, yeah. still there, but to kids now and to the younger generation that don't understand blues. And, and I think our audiences are probably mid, mid, mid age, middle-aged. Yeah. Um, that, that middle age is still pretty young compared to listening to the old, you know, stuff that we were listening to. So you are now that guy, you know, and that's great because it's great that, you know, there's a guy up there that can play like you and, 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 and sort of educate everybody to what that is. You know, it used to be everybody did, but now it's, you know, you're kind of up there by yourself. Well, Clark, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, the weirdest thing that's been happening in the last five years is, is the, this, this, um, like I, I, I meet appearingly, you know, they, they appear to be like functioning adults with children and, and people come and say to me like, Hey, um, you know, I learned how to play guitar from your song you know, the song you wrote called Slow Gin. And I said, well, actually yeah. that was written by, by Michael Kamen and Bob Ezrin, who you know very well. Sure. And, and I said, well, I didn't write it. He's like, but I learned how to play guitar. And I go, well, how old are you? He's like, well, I was like 10. And I'm like, how old are you now? He's like 36. And I go, okay, I've been around a little bit, you know? I've been around a few laps. You know? <laughs> it's starting to happen more and more where, you know, and, and, it's, and it's cool because you go, okay, well, then I was that person's host to... to yeah go back and, and listen to it. Well, not only that, but you know, it's, it's sort of like, um, you're going to be representing that now, you know, and, and you are, you are the guy that represents that. And, and the one thing is, is your, that kind of music will never go out of style. I don't, I don't think blues will ever go to style. And people say, why are bands like you and Guns N' Roses and Aerosmith still around? Because we're blues, guitar, rock bands. Right. And that's the one kind of music that never will ever get out of style. Yeah. You know, it's real. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's like, it's, it's really sung. It's really played. It's written from a, a, a heartfelt place. And I, and it, and it permeates into your DNA. You oh, know? if somebody were to tell my, my band that they had to use tracks, mm-hmm. they'd quit. Right. They said, we don't, we don't use tracks. We play, <laughs> you know, and I go, yeah, absolutely. No tracks. Except for special effects, you know, if you're doing special effects in a, yeah. you know, 
I remember I was at rehearsal here in uh, North Hollywood, a place called Third Encore. And there was a, a, behind the door in room C, there was a, a band that, that I recognized some of the songs on the radio. Yeah. They were rehearsing in there. And I go, wow, you know, I'm like, that singer, he's really going for it at rehearsal. Kudos, you know, he's not, he's, he's not dodging any notes, you know? And then all of a sudden, the, sudden the, the door swings open and it's just the bass player. There's no band, there's no singer. And it's just the bass player playing along with, the tracks I'm like, <laughs> I'm like well well how do you even know if you're on in the pa you know because the sound guy can you know to me i'd rather hear the mistakes i'd rather see it oh, crash and burn yeah. you know than, well, than the feel, the feel you know i mean if you've got a great pocket drummer you know and, and he's going to be on all the time exactly if you got a charlie watts or a ringo or somebody that's in the pocket you yeah. know that's it's not going to waver too much, you know, but when you're, when you're playing a big, you know, giant truck rock band yeah. and uh, it, our drummer's great, but I like it to feel, I like it to float a little bit. Right. That feels good to me. I mean, look at how good the stones are. Yeah. If you go to see McCartney, it's perfection. Right. Everything is perfect up there. And then you go to see the stones and they're gloriously sloppy. Yeah. Which is great. That's what you want the Stones to be. I don't want. I asked Charlie Watts one time. I said, Did, "Do you guys know any endings?" <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, "No, not really. <laughs> Just got to end somewhere." <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's that ramshackle thing. It's like you know, and you could see Daryl Jones sometimes. He's kind of like the anchor. It ke- keeps them. It, it flows back and forth. I, I opened up a couple of Stone shows, and I was like, I was just amazed at how it all works symbiotically. Yeah, it does you don't want them to sound anything except in fact the last time i saw it was about two years ago in phoenix and i'd never heard them that good wow they were unbelievably good uh both guitars ronnie and and keith were i said wow guys playing great man you know i mean and i saw them when i saw them when i was 16 when they just when they had the original lineup brian right. Jackson, everybody and they only played 45 minutes and they were all in one little group playing you know and they were great but i mean the stone sounded unbelievable last time i saw them they were really good and and to be that inspired all those years playing those same songs that's it um i read i read somewhere you you were like when when you're putting the persona of alice cooper together that that you go rock and roll needs a villain there's no real villains yeah you know and and i also read that that sometimes you would play here because i'm here in los angeles that la didn't get you like once you went to detroit then it was like all right you know the mc5 and and the stooges and all you know it was like ah some like-minded people who who like this this kind of well you have to remember we 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 were the house band at the cheetah club Mm -hmm. and it was you know that was a really cool place uh they everybody played it held like three or four thousand people it was out on you know uh the boardwalk out there and um it was there was a um, lenny bruce birthday party it was called and wars right. were there you know and the buffalo springfield and jefferson airplane and lee michaels people like that and we were the house band so we were going to kind of finish up the evening everybody right. was on acid everybody's this you know yeah. oh it's so wonderful right. <laughs> we came on and we had up lighting and we were like, we were more clockwork orange 
than right. we were, you know, peace and love. Right. And we started out with a song called Out on the Street by The Who. And it was so loud and so angry. They couldn't get out of the place fast enough. People were running for the doors, trying to get out of the doors. And that's when Frank Zappa said, anybody that can empty a room that quick. (laughs) (laughs) But we knew that we didn't have any future in L.A. That was not. And then we played San Francisco and certainly did not make sense there because they were way groovy. You know, New York had its sound. The South had its sound. But when we got to Detroit, we got a place called the Saugatuck Pop Festival. I'd never heard of any of these bands because they weren't national bands. You never heard of MC5 or or Iggy and the Stooges or Susie Quattro or any of these, you know. And we showed others 200,000 people there and all pretty much local bands. Right. And we saw the MC5 and I went, holy crap. Look at these guys. I mean, it was a show. Right. They were political and they were in your face and they were kind of, yeah. And then I saw the students and I said, who's this guy? I finally went, uh-oh, I got competition. Right. <laughs> and, and then we went on and, you know, we played what we played. We played hard rock, you know, right in your face with all the theatrics and they loved us. And then they found out we were from Detroit. I was from Detroit. Right. So I was the missing link, you know, yeah, we yeah. moved there. And then every weekend it was like, you'd play the Grandy with, you know, Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes and Alice Cooper and Susie Quattro and the who. Right. Because the big bands only played, you know, ballrooms. They weren't playing arenas. Right. And then you look down and you see there's Smokey Robinson, you know, and there's Marvin Gaye. All the Motown guys would come in to the rock shows on, on the weekends, too. It was really a cool scene in Detroit because Motown and rock and roll were like that. Everybody, yeah. we didn't see color. We didn't see sound. It was just, it was just, we'd go to their shows. They'd go to ours, you know? Right. And I mean, you, you, you invented this kind of spectacle, you know, on stage that, that didn't exist before that, you know, like, did you, did you, were you conscious like, like, Let's let's just see how many people we could piss off and see how far we could push this thing. The more negative press that we got, the bigger we got. And right. it was one of those things where we kept riding that, you know, and Ezra and Shep, you know, were both going, great, let's yeah. keep it going, you know. And we were going, wow, we're selling these shows out and half the people are leaving. But right. it was because that, that that was kind of a cool thing to do, you know. But it got to a point then that we were the only band in Detroit that actually had a national hit with 18. Right. Dean got on CKLW and it became a hit. And it, it, he listened to the top 40 and it didn't fit in there. Yeah. You, you're up against Sinatra. You're up against the Supremes, Simon and Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and then 18. Right. But it was time for that song. It was time for that song. And, it, and it, you know, that's what took us out of Detroit and made us a, a bigger band later on, you know, all those bands ended up being national bands. I mean, would, when you, when you put out 18, you know, when you, when you, when you guys recorded, you know, wrote the song, did you know it was like something that could possibly be a hit or did you just didn't care? We didn't think that was the hit at all. We right. thought that the song caught in a dream was going to be the hit, you know, that was the first song on the, you know, we said that's more melody. It's more this. It's more that. But what made it powerful was Bob kept saying, "Dumb it down." And 
yeah, but we want to be the yardbirds. <laughs> right, right. He's going, no, no, dumb it down. It's I'm 18 and I like it. Right. And we're going, well, how do you dumb it down? Finally, it was at its most basic. Dum, 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 you know, yeah. and it was powerful. We learned that then, that the simplicity is powerful. Yeah. The only song that I thought, I, I said, if school's out's not a hit, then I should be selling shoes in a mall <laughs> somewhere. Because, I mean, I listened to it and I went, it's got everything that my generation's got. Yeah. And, and it ended up, that was the only one I was sure of. <laughs> that was really you know, that's, that's the thing. I mean, like, when you listen to 18 and school's out, every adolescent kid can relate to that. Absolutely. Right. That's right. what an anthem is. Yeah. It's the, yeah. it's the ringing of the bell at three o'clock, right? The day before summer vacation, exactly. or, it's, or it's when you turn 18 and your father goes, well, you're, you're an adult now. You got to go fend, fend for yourself. But then you, you're introduced to this entire world that you were sheltered from just the day before. And, well, and the trick to that song, the actual hook to that song was, oh man, everything is wrong. I, I, I'm going to get drafted and I can't even drink and I can't this, I can't vote. I can't everything. I'm 18 and I like it. Right. That was the yeah. chaos. I love the chaos of my life. I love, you know, I love being 18, you know, right. and that was really the hook at the end was the I'm 18. I like it. I love it. I like it. I love it. And every kid went, yeah, that's me. Right. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 you know, it plays when it came out, it's this. It's the same message as it is today. It's the yeah. same, you know. And and it's, it's the word is timeless. On on, yeah. on well, if you play if, if you play my generation for a sixteen year old kid right now, he's going. That's me. He's talking right. about me because it's it's again it's timeless. He, every kid's going to go through that period in his life, and he's going to relate to that song. Uh, smells like Teen Spirit. Yeah. You know, there's every once in a while you 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 hear one of those anthems that you know is going to go on forever for me one of the first ones biggest anthem was i get around by the beach boys right i yeah. said oh that's me man that's me i want to be that you know yeah you want to be you, you want to be you want to be annexed from your parents and 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 be your own person you know? and be your buddy be with your buddies in a car and you know running around on the weekend i mean how cool is that that's at that time that was the coolest thing you could do you know i get around when was the first time you realized you were a celebrity in the sense that you couldn't walk into a room without being noticed, without all eyes going, I think that's Alice Cooper right there. You know, it was, it, that happened kind of subtly. In fact, I wasn't Alice Cooper. I was the lead singer in the band, Alice Cooper. Right. And that, you know, I became Alice Cooper because people looked at me and just said, Hey, Alice, how are you doing? Right. What are you going to do tonight, Alice? And I finally went, okay, I'm Alice. Yeah, you're right. You <laughs> took name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that we forced it on people. We had a thing called the uh, Alice Cooper coming out party at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, right. and we had all drag queens as as cigarette girls. Mm -hmm. You know, it was Hell's a Poppin'. There was a movie called Hell's a Poppin' with right. with Olsen and Johnson, and we fashioned it after that, where anything yeah. could happen. We had a 400 pound black lady named TV mama come out of a cake, you know, <laughs> Yeah, right. it was insanity. And everybody there was like, some of the Kennedys were there. Right. They actually kind of thought it was an, 
a party for some, you know, Pasadena debutante. Named right. <laughs> and it was an, it was a night of a total insanity. Of course, at that point, all we were doing was using the old Hollywood publicity stunt that nobody had used in a long time. And we applied it to our band. Right. You know, we're outrageous. So we're going to, you know, we're right. going to be outrageous in a really big way. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, it, and it really, it does, it does prove the point that there's no such thing as, you know, bad publicity, you know, it's no. like, you know, it, you know, I, I would imagine they wanted to shut, you know, like every time you would show up in the Midwest and, you know, do a concert in Nebraska or whatever, there had to have been protesters going, hey, let's shut them down. It's, they're scaring what, the children. What happened with the best thing that ever happened to us was they tried to ban us in England. I read about that. Yeah, yeah. it was the greatest thing ever. Uh, Mary Whitehouse and a guy named Leo Absey were MPs and they had a thing in the paper. Alice Cooper should never play England because he would, he'll destroy our youth and this and this and this. And of course, everybody went, well, I got to see that. Right, yeah. <laughs> our record went right to number one and we sold out Wembley. Wow. And they, and we were sending, I was sending her flowers. I was sending Leo Absey cigars and they couldn't figure out that every time they made a move against us in the press, it just yeah. made it bigger and bigger. Right. Now, now the trick was, was to deliver. Right. Once you got that publicity, then you had to get a show, do a show that was going to make everybody go, Oh, okay. And, right. and that was the deal. We had that show. So once you delivered on top of that, then America got it. They, people thought we were from England, like, like right. Jimi Hendrix, because yeah. they, they just went, wow, this whole controversy with Alice Cooper, what is this? You know, and then when we came back in, you know, successful with the whole thing, then you became a star because every, every household knew you, you know, everybody was talking about you. Right. It, the it, Sex Pistols used it very well. The Sex Pistols did exactly the same thing. They come to America. Listen how brilliant this is. They come to America. They're already controversial as you can bet as you could be and where do they play they don't play new york city they don't play los angeles they play texas right in right cowboy bars yeah where every night on the news national news is going to be what happened to the sex pistols that night yeah <laughs> that was so smart <laughs> brilliant I, I i used to be neighbors with johnny rotten john Lydon. yeah and um i i, I, I was his neighbor and, and, you know, you have a certain, you have a certain, I don't know, idea of what Johnny Rotten's going to be like, yeah. but who's a very smart, he's a, he was a marketing man. Yeah. Same thing with, 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 with Steve Jones. Yeah. You're like, I'm like, okay, I get this, you know, cause it was like, they had this product, they knew it pissed people off and they exploited it sure. to their, to their great advantage because they, they knew if anything that they did was being put under a microscope. So then they just, they, they did what everybody thought they were going to do. You Absolutely. Know? You know, McLaren, they're, they're the guy that put them together. The, the funny thing about the sex pistols that people don't get is that they're closer to the monkeys than anything else. What? Yeah. Right. People had to audition to be in the monkeys, you know, and yeah. you know, all those guys had to audition. You had to audition to be in the Sex Pistols, right? Because McLaren said, "This is gonna—I'm gonna create a band that's gonna be so, so bad in such bad taste, right?" And but I got to get the right guys, and so they auditioned these guys, and they even said, 
He said, we're closer to the monkeys than we are to anything else. Yeah. <laughs> Except they didn't have a TV show, that's all. Right. <laughs> you know, the thing is that when you look at yourself, the Sex Pistols, Iggy Pop, and the Yardbirds, all the great bands we, 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 we discussed, basically the, the one word that comes to mind that separates you guys from, from other great bands is you guys had the songs. That was it. I tell people that all the time. I said, you know, young bands especially. I go, guys, I get it. You're angry. Mm -hmm. You're just angry. You act angry. But play me an angry song. Not an angry riff. Right. Play me something that I can hear a verse, a B section, and a chorus. Yeah. So young bands would come to me and they would say, okay, we want to do what you did. I said, okay, good. I want you to listen to Burt Bacharach. Mm -hmm. I want you to listen to the Beatles and probably the Beach Boys. Yeah. And they're going, what? <laughs> right. I said, because they wrote perfect songs. Yeah. Bob Gaudio, you know, the uh, uh, Four Seasons. I said, listen to these records, how perfect they are. They yeah. never yeah. get in the way. There's nothing in the way of the vocal. There's nothing in the way of this. And once you learn to do that, then write an angry song. You can write an angry song and, you know, uh, and, and, and with the same kind of setup that Burt Bacharach did. Mm -hmm. They couldn't do it. They just can't do it. They, it doesn't register with them, you know. Uh, yeah, and, and you could apply it to thrash metal. And it's like what separates Metallica from from bands that came up in the same era that yeah. that, you know, were underground, you know, thrash metal bands. Metallica has songs. They can they play. Yeah. 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 And th that's exactly it. That's exactly it. You know, I mean, you, you cannot stop a great song. And, you know, and, and there's a big difference between a great song and a great record. You know, I mean, yeah. Yesterday is a great song. Good Vibrations is a great record. Yeah. Good Vibrations isn't necessarily a good song, but it's a great record. Right. I mean, it's, it's like a monster record. Um, but anybody on the planet can sit down and sing yesterday yeah, you know, or, or you know, something in the way she moves. So, you know, those are perfect songs. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, and it, go, it goes back to even classical music. It's like, it's like, if you ask somebody about Mozart and you'd be like, just, just like of all the operas and, and the great compositions he made, they were so harmonically complex. Most people just go, dun, 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 dun. It's the that simple, the earworms, you know, that just stick in your mind. And it's it's like some people have that knack to write. They can just write that stuff all day. You oh, know, I work with Alan Menken, uh, who wrote all the Disney stuff, right? right? I was doing a thing with Alan Menken. And he'd sit down at the piano and everything he played was a hit. He said, what about this? And I went, oh, yeah, that's great. It's and, great. You know, let's try this. And it was just it just flowed out of him. Right. And same thing probably with Paul McCartney. Same thing with, with you know, these guys just can write Brian Wilson. Right. You know, I mean, wrote perfect songs. Uh, and I, I don't know if that's some kind of formula or if it's just music that, that, that comes out of them. Hardest thing in the world is to write a Beatles song. Yeah. Easiest thing in the world is to write Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. <laughs> you know, because it's really just prog rock. It's, it's a bunch of different songs put together. You know? Right. But try to write, I'm going to hold your hand. That's hard. 
it's it's hard because it we all start with a blank piece of paper you know <laughs> like, and it's um you know um one of the things people always mention to me is like i've had the same manager for 31 years my manager roy and i we met i was a kid he was he's 10 years older than me so i was 13 he was 23 oh, great and so uh you know we, we basically got together around my birthday, which is tomorrow. Well, this is, oh, thank you. And we've been together 31 years and, and they go, you know, it's like so unheard of that, that you have the same manager for 31 years. I said, well, I go Alice Cooper and Shep Gordon, you know, you guys have been together almost since day one. 52 years. Yeah. 52 years. Right. You know, I mean, that's, that's unheard of in, yeah. in, in any sort of, even, even in film or radio or music or any of that, you know, how do you, how do you maintain that? You guys must be like on the same page on just about everything. It's so funny. Cause I'm, you know, he's a, a Buddhist Jew. Who mm -hmm. Jew we call right. right? And I'm a Baptist. I mean, you know, we're, we're worlds apart on a lot of, on, on, we, I have never once asked him uh, how much we made on that show. I've never once said, how much are we making on T-shirts? I've mm -hmm. never asked him. I said, at the very beginning, I said, look, I don't want to do business. I said, I'm not a business guy. Yeah. They said, I'll do, I'll do the music and the, and the entertaining, and you do the business. Uh, and I'll never question you. Mm -hmm. And it was all based on that. We've right. never had a contract. Right. We don't have any contract. We just kind of know each other so well, you know, that, that we, know, we, we knew how to sell Alice Cooper. And that yep. was the one thing we knew how to do, you know, and Shep, I could trust him with my children, with my grandchildren. Right. He could trust me with his. So, yeah, and we've never, ever had, I don't think we've ever had an argument about anything. You know, it's just the way it should be. It, exactly. My, my manager and I talk about this all the time. It's like in 31 years, we've never had an argument about anything. Yeah. Like yeah. we disagreed on certain things. And, but, you know, I always view myself. I like, I'm like, listen, you take care of the business side of it, the yeah. marketing. I'm the traveling salesman. You exactly. send me out there with the briefcase. Okay. I'll, 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 I'll sell, I'll sell steak knives. I don't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that's, you know, but that, it, 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 I, I, I talk to young bands and they go, they break up over what? Well, he had 12% of the t-shirts and he had nine percent of the i said you shouldn't even know that right you shouldn't even know what a t-shirt costs right i don't know what my t-shirts cost i don't i don't, I don't care you know right but i do care about making sure that the, that every night that show is dead on that's yeah. my responsibility and he's shep is like the guy that uh he takes a contract and he goes no right yeah <laughs> or, or he'll go yeah sounds good it's second nature you know yeah, yeah you know you 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 know like when you've seen it all and been through it all it's easy to kind of just laser focus and go listen we're, we're this is what we do unapologetically this is what we do you know, you know i'll tell you a great story about shep and i don't think i've told this too many times i, I tell every story a hundred times but um he was managing luther vandross mm -hmm. uh, uh uh blondie everybody the Gypsy Kings, Groucho Marx, Raquel Welch, wow. everybody, you know what I mean? Groucho. Yeah, Groucho. Well, Groucho was our buddy, you know, and, and he calls me in the office one day and he goes, look, he sees everybody's driving me crazy except you and Groucho. 
Mm-hmm. Groucho's fine. You know, he's, he's, he's all I do is take care of his, you know, his money. He say, you make sure nobody's ripping him off. That's all. Right. And he says, everybody else is driving me crazy. He says, I'm going to, I want you to be here when I call and I, I, I resign from everybody. And I went, okay. I sitting there and he goes, uh, oh yeah, yeah, I think I've done enough with, I think you can move on. To, it, we opened a bottle of champagne. He says, it's done. Just me and you. I went, great. Phone rings. <laughs> Fix it up. He goes, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> and I said, what? He says, George Harrison wants me to manage the Beatles. <laughs> and I went, you do it. I said, you have to say you manage the Beatles. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, but he said something really wise. He said, you know what? He says, I'm not going to manage the no. He said, I'll take care of your merchandise. He says, but I don't want to be there when Paul and John and Ringo and George are arguing over money. Right. He right. says, that ruins the Beatles for me for the rest of my life. He says, yeah, I yeah. want that fantasy of the Beatles being those four mop tops from Liverpool who were just yeah. having fun and doing great. He says, but you know, the business is going to ruin my image of the Beatles. And George yeah. goes, he said, I totally get that. He said, I totally understand that. And so he, he took care of the, the merchandise, you know, but I mean, you know, the very moment that he resigns from everybody, <laughs> the Beatles call him. <laughs> Hey, you, you know, hey, listen, when George and when, when, the, when the Beatles call, yeah, you have to t- you have to take the phone. Yeah, call. you take that call. <laughs> take the call. Like, no, I, you know, I just I'm sorry, George. I, I just I just retired and I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm only managing a couple of people, you know. I was the first guy to say, Shep, take it. Do take it. it. <laughs> oh do, you, do you think sometimes like do you think uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just one person talking is is I find that nowadays I think some of the younger acts overthink things. They just, they, they, they kind of get in their own mind. Is this the right thing for my career? Is this post the right post? Is, and, and they, and they kind of, and it, it becomes less dangerous because it's more curated as opposed to just throw caution to the wind. It, it either works or it doesn't. They'll tell you if they like, they like it or not. I think, you know, if this goes along with rock is dead, you know, with Gene and, and Gene's great. I mean, I love Gene. Gene's a great guy. And I think what he means is rock is financially dead. Like it used to be the king of the roost, yeah. you know, rock and roll. And it's not there anymore. Um, it's to me, rock is where it should be right now. We're on the outside looking in. Yeah. We're outlaws again. Right. We're, we're, we're not, you know, we're not disco. We're not, uh, uh, hip hop, we're not this and that. We're the young bands now are going. Yeah, we're we're kind of the, on the outcast thing. That's what rock and roll should be. That's yeah. where we were when we started. We were going, wow, this is great because you know parents hate us and they you know they want to hear Sinatra and here we are out here. Well, it's like that now. Everybody yeah. wants to hear hip hop and the rock and roll bands are got their nose up to the window looking in. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really essential ingredient to being a great rock band is being an outlaw yeah not being accepted you know so yeah, having to fight your way into it yeah, yeah it's the it's that struggle i'm 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 friends with those guys in uh the the, the another band from detroit a, a greta van fleet oh they're great great and they're great and like to me i look at them and, and it's like i mean like it's like that's that's what it that's what it's supposed to be it's just a bunch of kids fighting it 
fighting it out. And all of a sudden they become, they become big and ever, you know, they're introducing kids into a, a different genre, but yeah. you know, rock and roll is not pop music anymore for years. Yeah. People assumed rock and roll was pop music and now it's not. And like you said, it's, I think it's good because it, it makes people, I don't know, work harder, play harder and, and, and fight for notoriety. They're there. They are at the crux of, uh, of all, I think there's going to be another, you know, I think, I think it goes like that in, in, yeah. in cycles. And I think that every generation rebels against the last generation. And, and that's why vinyl has gone up 85%. Young kids are buying vinyl now because right. the last generation was all techno. Mm-hmm. You know? So these kids are going, no, I want some, I want to put the record on, put the needle on, see who wrote this. See, right. who, I said, that's, that's going to introduce hard rock bands again. That's going to introduce young, there's young bands right now listening to you and going, I want to play like Joe, man. And there's guys in there going, I want to play like Slash. I want to play like this. That's going on all over the world in garages right now. And I love that because I just think now Greta Van Fleet could be the band that is, is the peak of that, is the, at the tip of the sword, you know. And I'm hoping that that's true, but I, I can't see young bands wanting to not be in a rock band. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be in a rock band. You know, I mean, uh, also too, it's like, you know, now I just made a new solo record in January and my producer and I, we were talking about, I'm like, why are we talking about 13 tracks on a record anymore? It's like, can it fit on one vinyl? Because our favorite records were one vinyl. Like yeah. all my stuff comes out on vinyl now and it's two vinyls. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. every record's a double record because they've gotten long. You yeah, know, yeah. my favorite records are 30 minutes. I'm, I'm good. Exactly. Yeah. We, used to, we used to say, we only have 15 minutes on this side and 15 yeah. on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you yeah. want 10 tracks, they're all three minutes. You know, <laughs> if, you, if you want nine, you know, if you want to jam one out, you know. Um, tell me about, uh, and by the way, I'm, uh, uh, just so people know, like what kind, what, what kind of gentleman you are. I'm in the studio in New York city. We're in Germano studios and I get a phone call from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm like, this is curious. And I pick up and I go, hello. It's like, Joe, it's Alice Cooper. I'm like, hi, Alice Cooper. And, <laughs> and, and you, you were nice enough to say, cause your your record Detroit stories as debut number one on the on the rock charts congratulations and you were just calling to pass that on and by the way to the entire band and engineering staff was like silent when i was talking to you they're, they're like that i'm like yeah i'm like this is how nice he is um tell me about the record because because I, I i played on a couple tracks and 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 you got your old band back together bob ezrin came in and and it's it's a it's a great rock record yeah. yeah, it was it was basically, first of all, I, I one of the first things I bragged about was that I had you on the record. <laughs> I said, I got Joe Bonamassa on this record. OK, hello. Thank no, you. But I mean, it was like to to a lot of people, they just go, wow, Joe Bonamassa and Alice Cooper. That's a good, you know, I said, and it's on a blues song. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So wrote a blue song just so Joe could, you know, we wanted Joe, but Joe could play on any of these songs, any of the rock songs. That's what he does. Right. You know, but, but I especially, I've never done a blue song. And right. so I said, this is the perfect time to do this song where these three, you know, these, this guy's in a, living in a cardboard box under a bridge and mm-hmm. he's in love with this girl that's in another cardboard box under the right. bridge. And that love affair is just as valid as Romeo and Juliet. 
Right. Up there, it's a blue song. And he's going, come on over here. And we'll, we'll stay warm together and I'll get some, I'll get some wine. And we'll, you know, right. <laughs> it was like, I got to play harp and you got to, and guitar, against your guitar. And I went, this is big for me. Um, but what, what, what it was, was we decided to do a hard rock album. We want to do a really hard rock album coming out of this pandemic. Right. A right. real feel good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, every song was, you know, and we couldn't do that in Nashville. Yeah. You couldn't do that in LA. You couldn't do that. And then we finally just went to Detroit. Yeah. Let's go where Detroit, where hard rock is king. You know, yeah. we went there and then it, then it developed into, well, let's write it here. And then let's use all Detroit players. Right. Yeah. Because at some point, Joe was in Detroit. <laughs> right. Play the Fox Theater. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and, you know, we got, you know, Wayne Kramer and uh, Johnny B on drums. You can't get more Detroit. Those two guys are Detroit. Yes. They are Detroit. You couldn't, can't get more Detroit than them. And, and then, you know, we put this band together live in the studio and, I said, we can't layer this record. These guys are so good. You just got to let them play. Right. So he just taught them the songs and said, here, you know, and every one of those tracks were pretty much live in the studio, you know, yeah. uh, but it was all about Detroit. It ended up being an, oh, my, my tip of the hat to my hometown. And we even got to a point of saying, we need a Motown song, you know, right. and we wrote this song called a thousand dollar high heel shoes. Mm-hmm. We have the you know Detroit horns on there. We yeah. had uh, Sister Sledge singing the backgrounds on it and right. everything. And it became a Motown song. I said, I'm surprised not no Motown band has done this song. They're, they're going to cover this song. But I mean, that record just rocked, you know. And it was so easy to do because you had all guys that that's what they did. Yeah, they rock and roll. You know, it, it, it's it's like it's like if you wanted to make a Memphis soul record, you call Steve Cropper. And exactly. you better it's have proper on it yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> so uh, a couple of questions before we wrap up and um i, I know this, this you've probably have been asked this a few times who's the most interesting person you've ever played golf with um well i did play golf with groucho marx i would say that that's a okay there you go that's pretty good and the funny thing was there's a great story about this and I wasn't at this thing, but it, there's a, a golf course called Hillcrest in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. All the old comedians go there. Right. Yeah. And there's the, the greatest story there. The legendary story is Milton Burrow and uh, Groucho and all these comedians are there getting their shoes on, ready to play. And this kid comes in big kid. And he goes, uh, 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 apparently uncle Milty had the biggest unit. Right. In, right. He was notorious, you know, <laughs> and the kid comes in and goes, hey, uh, uh, I got a hundred bucks that says mine's bigger than yours. Right. And they're right. You know, tying their shoes and they're kind of looking at the guy and Millie says, yeah, you probably are. You know, you probably are a kid. Mm-hmm. And the kid says, well, how about $500? And he says, no, kid, come on. It's just like this. He's a thousand dollars. And Groucho sitting there and he says, he says, Milty. He said, get him to $10,000 and just pull out enough to win. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's great. What crust was like, but I mean, but playing with Groucho, you know, he wasn't very good, you yeah. know, but it was great because if, if I said, people say, if you could play with a foursome, who would it be? I'd say it would have been Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. Right. 
you know, on the road with those guys, yeah, Jerry yeah. Lewis and Dean Martin. Right. I said, because all four of them were great players. Mm-hmm. They were all really good players. And can you imagine the banter in yeah. that foursome? <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I mean, it's those guys were like, because my manager, uh, his father used to manage Don Rickles, along with Sinatra oh. and all oh. the, basically the Rat Pack. Joe, who was, who was your absolute guitar hero? Uh, if you had to pin me down, favorite singer, songwriter, and guitarist, Eric Clapton. Like, yeah. Like, that was that was my guy. Um, Paul Kossoff was another one from Free. He was yeah. he was my guy. Like, um, just uh, um, I, I there you go. Is it in phrase? You know, you, you listen to a guy how he phrases. Mm-hmm. You listen to a guy on how he, uh, you know, I mean, uh, what he's playing. I always loved a guitar player that could phrase a, a, a solo. You could always tell George Harrison wrote his solos. He yes. didn't just riff them. You know, he sat there yeah. and wrote them. And I think Beck did that too. You would sit there and you'd listen to a Yardbird song. That solo was perfect. Mm-hmm. It, it started here and it ended up here, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it said it took you on a journey. You know, it was another great uh, melodic guitar player who in my mind doesn't, in my opinion, doesn't get enough credit is Neil Sean. Yeah. Because he would he would it would basically steve perry would sing and then his solo would take over with the vocal with another hook everything was a hook yes you know it wasn't just like just oh here's a here's a you know here's a 16 bar you know one chord he made sure it was melodic like like the song exactly there were the jam players and then there were the guys that really uh that really phrased everything you know really nicely one of my people i'm so shocked sometimes when i tell them they say What's your favorite guitar solo? And I said, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? I said, I say goodbye to love, the Carpenters. Yeah. That solo at the at the middle and at the end. And yeah. I can't remember who was a studio guy. Maybe Tommy Tedesco or whatever. Knows or somebody like that. And I said, that is the best guitar solo I think I've ever heard. Based on the melody. And it just takes off on the melody, you know. Yeah, it's there's so many great, there's no right or wrong. You know, no, it's just how good is it? You know, I mean, you sit there just go, how good is that? All right. Anyways, what were we talking about? <laughs> oh, uh, just to wrap up. Tell me about the uh, Solid Rock Teen Centers. Like we, we uh, you were nice enough to ask me to play on the Christmas pudding a couple of years ago. when We can actually play in front of people. And it's such a great facility. It's such a great um, place, you know, for, for kids to go and make music. You know, I watched a very awkward drug deal go down with two 16 year old kids on bicycles. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this, you know, and I went, how does that kid not know he might be the best guitar player in Arizona? He's never had a guitar in his hands. How that kid might be the best drummer, you know? And I sat, I talked to my wife and I talked to a couple of friends of mine. It's a Christian nonprofit. And I said, what if we opened a place and any teenager could come in and learn any instrument or dance or art or all the things they took out of school for free, all free. And, you know, they don't have to, we're not going to beat them over there with a Bible. It's not a, it's not a church. It's, it's just something run by guy Christians. And and we've heard all the words, you know, they come in and they, they, they vocalize, you know, and we're going, yeah, nobody wants to work with teenagers because they're too hard. They're too hormonal. I said, no, I think if you give them, if you find something, if they find something that they really love, maybe they go and play guitar and they go, eh. And then they go in the next room and there's a bass. They go, ooh, I love that. You know, they're going to get addicted to 
something that's better than what's on the, out on the street. You right. know, these kids were born into, I'm going to sell meth the rest of my life, you know, and yeah, now yeah. I find the guitar and they go, Oh, this is what I love. You know? Yeah. So you're, you're literally changing their life just by introducing to something they never would have ever thought of doing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's what we're about. That's the whole thing. I, I, I always tell people that one of the funniest things, it, it shocked to me, we were getting, we were rehearsing, remember uh, with the original yeah. band. Yeah. And you were sitting there and you said, I'm a little nervous. And I went, what about what? <laughs> and he said, well, that's Dennis Dunaway over there. And that's Mike yeah. Bruce, and that's Neil Smith. And I went, yeah. <laughs> you know, cause to me, they're just the guys. Yeah, you're your guys. Yeah. Right. And I understood that if I was going to go sing, you know, with the who I'd go, Oh my gosh, that's, Pete Townsend, you know, and that's, yeah, you know, uh, but I got that. I totally got that. And I went, ah, oh, that's what a perspective that is. Here's the one, here's one of the greatest guitar players in the world. Nervous about playing with <laughs> our guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, I understand, you know, like, I don't want to be the guy who, who, who puts the clam out there to train wrecks. No, there you, was, you, you destroyed this day. You, you were great. Yeah, you destroyed. That was, it was so yeah. much fun. Alice, thank you so much for being here, man. It's like, it's such an honor. And, and you, you, it's just, you, again, I'm, I'm a huge fan and I'm honored to call you my friend. And, and, you know, thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking an hour oh, of your, is, your time to do this. You know, this is one of those things when they said, uh, it's Joe Bonamassa's thing. I said, oh, finally something I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I went, this is great. This is going to be, you know, I don't have to talk about this. I don't have to talk about that. I can, I can talk about music with a guy that, you know. Yeah, I, I try when we started the show, I try to do the non-interview, you know, it's like because exactly. I we've all been interviewed so many poorly so many times. I'm like, I'm like, I'm not going to invite all my friends on here just to just to. Exactly. When I do my radio show and I do interviews, I say, look, this is a conversation. Yeah. The audience is listening in on a conversation. That's right. it. It's not an interview. You know? exactly. So that's the same idea. But thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Alice Cooper. This has been live from Nerdville. Until next time. Thank you. <laughs>